Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. Welcome back, everyone, to what I'm calling the second season of Tidbits of Research. I had to take a break while I finished writing my thesis, defended, figured out what I'm doing next year. But now we're back. And I want us to ease our way into the second season and actually start with an episode I recorded a long time ago, thinking it would be a Friends special. I invited two dear friends, Laura Yan, currently doing a PhD in history at Columbia University, and Maddie Reynolds, doing a PhD in English at Cornell University. I know very little about research in humanities, so I was so glad I could have two friends show me a little bit of the way, as it were, and I'm thrilled to share our conversation with you. We talk about how research interests get crystallized and how they shift over time, what the transition to PhD writing is like, and even sprinkle some advice for new PhDs. Laura Ann and Maddie Reynolds, welcome to Tidbits of Research. So just to get us going, could each of you please introduce yourselves, maybe like name, institution, or field, and then one, two sentences, one could call it elevator pitch, but we don't have to, (laughs) about what you currently are doing in terms of research. Should I go first? (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm Laura Yan. I'm a PhD student at Columbia University in the history department. I'm in the international and global history track. I'm a sixth year, should probably mention that. And I work on the history of Indian Ocean port cities, uh, specifically looking at the shared history between Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bombay, and looking at migrant port workers in particular. That's very cool. I'm Maddie Reynolds. I'm uh, at Cornell University. I'm a PhD student in the English department. And I'm also a sixth year, and I'm working on a dissertation on 19th century animal studies. So I'm studying representations of animals in some key, very canonical and famous 19th century novels. So Frankenstein, Alice in Wonderland, for example, um, and how animals are anthropomorphized in them. That is so cool. I wish I could do something like that. <laughs> that sounds so fun. I was like, your research sounds very awesome. Like, <laughs> it also would involve very cool travel, I'm sure. So, yes, a lot of traveling. How exactly did you both pick, say, those cities or for Maddie, those books? I think for me, it wasn't really very intentional. I didn't come in studying Victorian novels to the PhD program. I was studying romantic poetry and my first advisor ended up leaving and then I switched over to studying with a Victorian professor. And so basically after my A exam, the qualifying exam, I really didn't know what I wanted to work on. So my committee was like, why don't you just make some syllabi? Like if you taught some classes, like what would you teach in your class surrounding like a topic that interests you because you seem more like topic based rather than like specific literature based. Then I was like, oh, okay, that's great, because, like, I love teaching, so, and that's kind of, like, my reason for being in the program. Um, (laughs) So I was like, I'll just, like, make a series of syllabi. I think I had various ones on kind of, like, environment and literature, and I came up with this, like, animals one, and 
Then I sent them all to my committee. This is like in the summer after I took my exam. And they were like pretty unwilling to tell me like which one I should do. My committee chair has been working on animal studies. So I think she was a little like, oh, that would be a really cool topic for you. And it seems like it would like take into account your different interests. Because I think I thought I wanted to do like an environmental studies sort of dissertation. But then she was like, well, you don't seem as into like bigger literary form or setting or stuff like that. All your papers are always like character studies. And it seems like that would fit very well with like animal studies because you can look at like animal characters or like instances of animals. So yeah, that's like how it ended up happening. It was really kind of just by accident. Yeah, I think my process was pretty accidental as well. It also changed a lot during the three years between the beginning of the program and when you uh, submit the prospectus and then start research. Because I was originally supposed to look at migrant workers in Dubai. That's what I did my application for, partly because I did more Middle Eastern history at Wellesley. And when I was applying, some of my undergrad professors were already telling me like, oh, maybe you should look at both Dubai and Singapore because you speak Chinese. This could be like a really interesting case study because they both model off of each other uh, and they're both kind of models of urbanism in Asia. So I was like, oh, okay, that's something to think about. But I didn't really seriously consider it until I had to start applying for summer funding. And our East Asian Institute on campus just has so many more grants available for you to go and do research. So I was like, yeah, maybe I will do Dubai and Singapore, partly so I could you know, get some funding and, and go to Singapore and start doing archival research. But then it shifted to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bombay, partly because historians are starting to become interested in the relationships between these three cities anyway, because they were all in the same kind of imperial shipping circuit. A lot of colonial officials traveled between these three places. So there is a shared history there to study. And also, I myself am from Hong Kong. I work with professors who work on Bombay. So they were kind of pushing me in that direction. Yeah, so that's pretty much how it happened, partly for funding and partly based on yeah, committee's comments. How does like a day in your life go now? And how does a day in your life go, say, before your qualifying exam or A exam or whatever the equivalent is in your field? So for our program, it's two years of coursework. And then in your third year, you apply for grants, you do your prospectus, and you do your orals or your quals. And then usually you spend one or two years in the field doing archival research. And then you come back, write up, and hopefully finish in six or seven years. You know, certain changes within that structure, depending on your subfield. You know, US historians, they don't have to travel as far usually for their research, so their timeline can look a bit different. So before quals, I, I think I was mostly focused on coursework, reading whatever books we had to read for the class, and then, you know, TAing once, once that started. I think I only did research during the summer. Yeah, that was really when archival research was available. 
but I, I'm not sure that was the right approach. I tell people now who are coming in, like, I wish I'd started primary source research sooner because there are so many published volumes or sort of like department reports from Singapore, for example, that are at the New York Public Library. And I didn't really know about them when I was in the city. So I, I think it's partly because I sort of approached the first two years as sort of like an extension of college because I didn't really know what I was doing. And then when you're doing archival research, you're usually there probably nine to five. Right now, <laughs> during COVID, I'm sort of in a weird stage uh, where I haven't actually finished my research because it got cut short. So I'm, I'm trying to write with sort of research half done. So sort of a mix of, you know, trying to go through my sources, write some things up, but also catching up with secondary sources as well. So basically combination of reading and writing, which I'm sure is very similar to what Maddie is doing. Right. I was like, that all sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, before um, the exam, like, yeah, like coursework was very structured. Kind of as Laura said, like, it did remind me of undergrad. Like I had, you have to do like readings and then you go to class and like you have to write papers. Like often you have to write like little response papers and stuff each week or like you have your end of semester term papers. So it just felt like kind of more constant work all the time. For us, we have three years of coursework, and then beyond that, you write your dissertation. So I don't really have like a research phase because my research can just be going on all the time. I don't do archival work, so I can just be like reading books from the library at Cornell usually. I mean, and I can usually get most other books sent to Cornell. So basically, I started writing in my fourth year, and then I just have been trying to write like a chapter every several months or so. Can I just ask, Yeah, how did you find the transition to writing? I found it very strange because we have to write a lot of seminar papers. So I was like, oh, it's fine. A chapter is like two seminar papers put together. Like that'll be manageable. But then my committee, and once I passed my prospectus, they were like, you should start working on your dissertation now. And I was like, okay, should I like read a lot of stuff? Do you have some like suggestions for getting started? And they're like, oh, no, no, you should not read a lot of stuff. You should just start writing now. And I was like, wait, what? Usually I like have a researching period where I read a bunch of sources and then I like write. But they were like, no, if you start reading a bunch of sources, it'll just never be over. You'll keep finding more and more sources and then it'll just like snowball and be like horrible. And then you'll also feel like so paralyzed and you'll never be able to write anything. So I basically just felt like I was just going in with like no knowledge whatsoever and writing stuff. I totally get why they said that because then I wasn't like, oh, no, I can't write that because somebody else wrote it already. But it was so hard to write. Like, I thought it would go quickly because usually I just research and then I write it in like a week and it's fine. But it just did not because I was like, I don't know what to do. And it's like not a linear process. I just keep writing some random stuff. And I don't know if it's like going toward anything. I don't know if you've like had this feeling. I mean, for you, it's hard because your research got cut off. Laura has been continuously nodding, I would like to say. (laughs) I'm laughing. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's this all sounds so familiar. And I had so many conversations with, you know, some friends in the department about this because yeah, like you have your coursework and then you have your research year and then you're suddenly expected to just write and no one really tells you how to do it and my advisor recently pointed out like how absurd this whole process is he was like we just tell people that you don't start writing until fourth or fifth year that's not right he said like we should actually be encouraging people to start writing little bits earlier 
outside of kind of seminar papers, right? Because that's how I sort of thought of it at first. I was like, yeah, you know, it's just a long string of research papers strung together. How long can this actually take? Right, exactly. Turns out a very long time. <laughs> it's a totally different process. I'm kind of like, wait, it's not just like a seminar paper. And then it's like, oh, no, it's just like a totally different yeah, thing. <laughs> it's very odd because you, you feel like you know how to write a paper from those seminar papers. But right. for some reason, once you hit the ABD stage, it's just it's all gone. And like, you don't have a method anymore. Right. Yes. I feel like nothing that I learned in coursework really prepared me to write the dissertation, which like is so wrong. <laughs> but that's what I heard. I was talking to a friend the other day and he was like, yeah, what I've heard is kind of your seminar paper, like that doesn't prepare you to write your dissertation chapter. It's not really the same thing as a dissertation chapter. And it's also not the same thing as an article because you have to like do a lot of revision to make an article and take out all your lit review and make your argument stronger or whatever. And then he was hearing that your dissertation does not really translate into a book. And like, I hear of people who work for years and years after their dis manuscript, like on the book manuscript. So I don't really know how this happens. Yeah, I mean, I think in our field, it usually, it can take 10 years to transform your dissertation into a book. And it's just so crazy because, you know, during coursework and during the quals, you're reading published articles, you're reading published books. So it means that you're kind of trying to model yourself off of those forms of writing. And as you just said, Maddie, neither of those is anything like a dissertation. So you don't actually know how to write one. Yeah, it's very odd. <laughs> right. So in general, I have a lot of confusion about grad school and like what it teaches you. <laughs> well, I think this is a perfect segue because every field has kind of its own values and its own you know, things inherent to this is how you read something, this is how you write something, this is how you think about something. How do you learn those? Do you just pick them up in time? Do you just hope to have a good advisor? How does that work? For example, I'm going to go into my research. <laughs> yes, yes, this is what we want to hear. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Give the listeners what they want. <laughs> right. I have to sometimes read lots of papers because my research is at the intersection of a number of fields to read stuff from like, do people in decision theory do this? Do people in philosophy do this? Lots of my work is just read a lot, but it's kind of skimming <laughs> and then figure out, oh no, this paper is helpful. Then look more closely. So it's a lot of reading the same thing multiple times with different eyes. And this is not what many mathematicians do, but for my kind of thing, this is something that I've become very specialized in. <laughs> but that has been something that I personally have figured out through like trial and error. How has that process been like for you in terms of figuring out this is how a historian thinks this is how someone who's doing research in English thinks this is how I approach reading a book you sort of just have to try to absorb things over time but then I find that every once in a while you just have to kind of revisit everything I think coming into grad school I knew nothing about the field of history really you know, there are different approaches like social history, cultural history, how the field has changed over time. And I just really didn't know very much about it. So I think through coursework and the kinds of questions that the faculty and students would ask when we're talking about the article or the book that we're reading, and then conversations on your own 
with professors. That's probably when you start really kind of like through osmosis, because I don't even know if it's conscious, thinking about, oh, how are people approaching things? What do they think about when they're trying to figure out the argument? What are the kinds of questions that people are interested in? So for us, I mean, it's really, you know, out of the humanities fields, history is different because it's really concerned with change over time. So I think English and history, both fields have like a certain textual nature, right, in terms of reading sources. But the research questions, I think, are, are very different. And depending on your approach, my project is maybe a little more structural because it focuses on four cities. It's not really based on a specific set of documents or sources that someone wants to analyze, whereas some historians might have that as the core of their project. And then I think starting to write grants really trains you as well because that's when you have to start clarifying what you're trying to do. That's when you actually have to start thinking about like, oh, what is my core research question? Like what is actually driving me through this crazy years long process? And then I think the quals also teaches you how to read in some way. Sometimes I really had to figure it out on my own and I recently went back to some notes from quals and I was like, I don't know what I was doing. But some professors will then tell you like, oh, you know, when you're writing notes, you should be identifying the argument and maybe have some key words to help you categorize this work and also like know a little bit about the scholar so that you can think about how the field has changed. But it took me a long time to figure that out. And I think, as you were saying, Smeranda, there's so many different modes of reading, right? When you're reading something, maybe just for the argument, you're, you might not be reading it as closely as something you need to like mine for information. So I feel like every time I go back to a book or an article, I find something different. So it's great, but it's also like frustrating <laughs> because it's like, oh, how come I didn't pick this up the first time? Yeah, no, I mean, I really resonate with the idea of when you go back and reread things, you see different things all the time. And like, I mean, I just think that that's a really cool idea in terms of reading practice. <laughs> Nothing in the text ever changes. All the words are the same, but like you change. If it's in your research, you have more experience, you have more exposure to other readings, which you can then connect back. But even like with reading literature, for example, like I just basically every time I read the same text over, it feels like a new reading. I mean, there are details that I remember, but I just feel like I am a different person than when I read it before. And so like, as one of my college professors said, like all reading is rereading, which I was like very struck by. Um, and I think just like knowing like, oh, okay, like there's a certain growth there. I mean, you can feel frustrated. Like, how did I not get this? Why can't I always just get it all from one time? But there's also something, a way of measuring what you've learned, which I think is very cool. So I don't know. I just really like that comment in terms of like research. <laughs> I'd say like similarly, like I don't think I really was taught a lot of research or reading methods. I think the biggest thing that we learn from coursework is the theory. So Cornell is a big literary theory school. So you're just learning different branches of theory. Like I work on eco-criticism or like feminist theory or queer theory or critical race theory. So kind of learning the general key terms of those and how scholars who are working in them think. And I think that's good. Like actually you don't even always need to get that from reading. I feel like you can get that from like osmosis as well. Like people are just being like, they said this. And you're like, oh yeah, they said this. 
Um, so like, and then that's helpful for you to situate your work. I feel like in terms of writing, I thought that grad school would be like, I will become a better writer now, like really good at writing. But like, I just feel like I got very little like formal writing teaching. Like, I feel like I've had to do a lot of writing. So I think my writing has gotten better. But I think that's like from reading and writing more. There have been a couple of like, good advice or like tidbits of advice, I guess, that my professors have given me. <laughs> tidbits of research. Oh! <laughs> 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 yeah. Definitely, as I've written my dissertation, the biggest thing that I need to like work on is framing. So like putting my argument and making it central. So sometimes it kind of gets written in the end or whatever, like when I figure it out, but they're like, no, it needs to be in like page two say some sentences that are like saying your actual argument and then just signposting. So saying I'm doing this and making it really clear what sort of moves you're going to make in the paper so that it's not just that it evolves. You have to be like, now I will take us through this argument from this person because it's, it's important for my argument for these reasons. So making that all very clear so it doesn't just happen. Yeah. Laura, do you have any advice that now pops into your <laughs> recollection? Yes, so much. <laughs> so much <laughs> advice. I, I'm trying to choose. I think the majority of it comes from my advisor. Definitely a lot about, you know, very similar to Maddie in terms of forefronting your argument. I definitely had papers where, you know, in a paragraph, I would kind of sum up a scholar's argument and then I'd say, this is my contribution, right? But you actually have to switch it. Yeah, that's so true. Yes, right? And it's kind of counterintuitive because as you write, it's like, oh yeah, I'm thinking of this person and this is my response. And then it, it takes revisions to then get it into the format that, I don't know if it's like people prefer, I don't know if it's easier to read, but at least I guess a format where your voice maybe stands out more. I am also a kind of writer who finds the argument as I'm writing. <laughs> so it usually takes me, you know, seven drafts to get to something. In terms of research, I think the most important advice I got also from my advisor was really just make sure you have your core research question in mind as you enter the archives, because it can be very easy to like lose track and get interested in, you know, oh, I found this document, let's see where it leads, which can be helpful because people find their second project that way. But it can also mean that you get overwhelmed and you come back with all these sources and you don't know what to do with it. And, you know, you should probably start processing everything from day one in the archives, which I didn't exactly follow. And now I wish I did. <laughs> um, so I'm taking, you know, this time during COVID to try to do that. So if there would be kind of one thing that you would like the world to know about your particular research, even more general field, we can take a second. <laughs> but what would you like people to know? I can start okay. taking a stab at it, a rambling that. Perfect. <laughs> that sounds good. I think for the field, you know, whenever I tell someone, oh yeah, I study history, they're like, oh, I, that sounds really cool, but I hated studying history at school. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if, you know, you get a similar reaction, right? Yes. Oh yeah. Because they, yeah, <laughs> I, it must happen to I everyone. I feel like we just meet the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but it's, you know, because they think of history as I have to memorize certain dates, the order in which things happen, and it's just really boring. And, you know, to a certain extent, like you have to get to a point where you need to be able to create a sort of a narrative over time. But it's, I would say that's just not really, in my mind, what history is about. It's really about, I think, asking questions that challenge your own assumptions about like why we live the way we do especially you know like everything's crazy right now there's a lot in modern times that we take for granted something like abstract time for example like time zone you know it's like no this this only came about in the 19th century (laughs) (laughs) so i think you know I love the tone. Is that your historian oh, tone? <laughs> That's how I spend my day. I go around telling people this only came about in the 20th century. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think that's really what I find interesting about it. And I think, you know, history can be so much more personal than people think. Something that a professor said you know, your dissertation question is actually very, very personal. And oftentimes you don't realize it until, you know, you start getting into it. And you're like, why, why did I choose this, you know, research question, right? Why am I interested in this? And I think that will hopefully be reflected in the work in terms of that strong attachment that you have to it. In terms of my research, I place myself in Indian Ocean Studies, which is transnational, and it's not really how the field is structured. The field is split into mostly regions or nation states. So you study US history, you study British history, you study European, and the Indian Ocean history tries to kind of cross those boundaries and bring to light these historical connections between places in southern China and place in the Middle East that have had a really long history that not a lot of people have talked about. So I would say my research kind of touches on these histories of circularity and movement and migration that, at least from my childhood, were very much reflected in the food, you know, street signs, language. So it was all around us in Hong Kong, but most people don't realize it, that I think have sort of been obscured by 20th century nation states. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to this only came out in the 20th century. (laughs) This is making me like wonder like what is the personal, is there a personal (laughs) stake in my, like I'm sure it's very true. At the end like you keep kind of latching onto this topic because it speaks to you in some personal way. I guess I would say for English as like a field, very similarly, either people are like, oh, I didn't ever like high school English. Actually, no, I got a lot of people being like their high school English teacher like changed their life. And I was like, maybe I should become a high school English teacher. (laughs) English was my favorite subject in school. I almost became an English teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But then I also got the other, you know, like, that's so useless. Why would you ever do that? (laughs) Um, There is a valid question in there at some points, but... I think just thinking about how how do we use text? I mean, some people are like, I just never read, so whatever. But people read all the time, and they're confronted with images and text in their daily lives, and they are always interpreting it, or it's presented in certain ways to make you interpret it in specific ways. So it's important, the language that's used and the images even that are used. And I think a literary field is 
the great strength of it is to kind of like help you see the way that certain texts are constructed and like what they're trying to get you to do and how to make your own interpretation and think more critically about them. So, I mean, in general, that's like why I like teaching the like freshman English classes is because just at that very base level, interpretation is important. And similarly, even if you're reading texts from like very long ago or from somewhere that is not here or, you know, you feel like maybe you're not so connected to like the author. There are just so many things that show us about how we live now and the ideas that have been passed on in this intellectual traditions of literary studies and how that how those things are still influencing how we think, whether it's, I mean, whether we might think of them, like value them, or we might be like, wow, that's, you know, really messed up. And, you know, people have thought about these ideas and passed them on for so long, and like, they're still, still quite prevalent. So I think it's important, at, similarly, to like understand the sort of literary history, but also just to be able to like know how to read, um, inter- interpret for yourself. I don't know for my project what things I would want people to like take away from it. I'm glad in a sense that I've like started thinking more about kind of representations of animals. And I think the more I do it, the more I see ways in which we use animals to like talk about things that are important to us, but also the way that we like treat animals as quite expendable. So for me, it just seems like there's this very disparate idea. You can see there's like animals in my background. We use them as kind of icons of cuteness and that sort of thing. But like also animal life is often not filled with cuteness. (laughs) Um, And just especially in the period that I'm studying when people are kind of deciding like, do animals have rights? How should we treat them? I think that's kind of important to think about. My dissertation talks a lot about like, the ways in which we want to make a huge distinction between people and animals, but there are lots of ways in which we don't. And like, we kind of like blur them together. We humanize and personalize them. And like, why do we do that? There is a sort of subconscious act of, we do see some form of humanity often in animals. So yeah, I think that's been kind of interesting to like look at. To what extent do you feel like you know, your experiences shape your research, and then your research shapes your experiences, like how you engage with things. Maida was just saying, well, now I notice all these things about animals. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it is hard because like, my dissertation, I have not been particularly wedded to it. (laughs) Um, Mm. I think there are ways that I see these things being important in life. And really, like I decided to come to this as a way to look at categories and the ways that we want to police the boundaries of categories, but often we can never do that. Things bleed together. And like my first chapter is on hybridity and kind of what does it mean to be hybrid or more than one thing? Um, And the ways that you kind of come up against societal norms if you don't fit nicely into the boxes. So I think I thought about those things kind of abstractly. I'd say like probably more of my like research that is kind of making me think more about my life and experience comes from teaching, which is on slightly like different things. So I was teaching a class about gardens and that class ended up being very much about gardening movements, food security, and racial justice in within garden movements. 
And like, I think I've thought a lot more about how do we get our food? What is like equitable access to food? And even outdoor green space. I worked with some people in the city of Ithaca who were like trying to make much more green space and community gardens accessible. And they, they were running up against a lot of city imposed ordinances that were kind of preventing them. So kind of even thinking like, oh, Ithaca, you think of it as a very green space, but like who gets to use that? Mm. And what sort of programs do they have in place? Because like now there are some community gardens that have like programs for youth, like underserved youth who can, you know, like maybe they are food insecure and then they can like help grow their own food and like have also access to this green space. So I think things like that where I've, I've just been thinking a lot more about systems, often systems of inequality in the U.S. And especially since I'm graduating, kind of being like, what do I want to do with this knowledge? It's one thing to teach it in a college classroom, which is especially like a place of privilege, but I'm like, do I want to still stay in the classroom and be doing this? Do I want to go out and work more directly on these issues? Like, I think education is always direct, but just in what ways do I want to do advocacy? That's really cool. It sounds like you're doing amazing work. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I think for me, I don't know if it's my research specifically or just kind of general grad school training, but it sort of it manifests sometimes when I'm like watching a TV show and I'm like, oh, this is so imperialist. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> that happens so often. Right. I think you just interpret things in, in such different ways. Actually, one of my proudest moments, you know, aside from teaching, like when students can feed that back to you and it's like, oh yeah, I thought of this in a completely different way. Is my husband now? Um, he said that he just thinks of the word empire completely differently. And I'm like, yes, my work is done. Um, it's so true. Like, it's like just thrown around so lightly. And then I was going apple picking, and there's like empire apples. And one right. of my friends was like, I like empire. Empire is good. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what? oh no, why do we mean this? This, yeah. And you, you know, you live in the empire state. Right? Like how, you know, how exactly did New York get that name? Anyway, so that's, that's a very kind of like minor manifestation, I guess. It usually translates into rants about imperialism. That's great though. (laughs) You know, I think when I'm like walking around those cities that I study, I try to be very aware, you know, looking at a, a certain building And I think, oh, you know, that looks really interesting. I wonder where these building materials came from. How did this style emerge? Oh, I feel like I've seen a very similar building that I see right now in Singapore in Hong Kong, for example. So how can I kind of trace that history? I think that's how my interests have shaped the way that I look at the world. And it's also like the research has been shaped by like existing interests. I think I was already interested in urban history. You know, I was born while Hong Kong was still a British colony, for example. So I have a weird relationship with the British Empire because Hong Kong was such a late, late colony. And, you know, it's it's kind of weird, like comparing that to the US because there obviously is a colonial history here, but it's, you know... I think in a lot of people's minds, it's so far back, whereas in Hong Kong, it's so recent. So I think that, you know, then bled into the research and then bled back into how I then 
you know, approach my memories of Hong Kong and then rethink like how I just like went about my day, for example, or like what kinds of people did I talk to? What do my friends and I talk about? Like what kind of food are we eating? Kind of revisiting everything, you know, with the framework of, I guess, the research questions that I have in mind. So I know where both of you went to undergrad, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> really? I didn't, I don't know if I knew you there. <laughs> So funny story, but Laura and I met in like international pre-orientation at Wellesley. So, oh my God, from the beginning, from the yeah, pretty much like the first day, I think. Yeah. I think oh so. wow, that's amazing. Ridiculous. How do you feel undergrad prepared you or didn't prepare you for grad school? I was like, ooh, <laughs> I like this one. You should start. <laughs> I just feel like undergrad and grad school are like such a different experience that in a way, like when you come to grad school, for me, it was a big letdown. <laughs> I just thought I was going to like learn fun things like I did in undergrad. And I think in a way, like because I went to liberal arts school, or I went to Carleton College, it was very interdisciplinary. You could study whatever you wanted. There weren't like a lot of rules. I mean, there was a lot of work, but like you kind of just like made your own path and you could do whatever interests you had. I just was very struck by the way that grad school felt like professional training. I was not prepared for that because it wasn't professional <laughs> school. Like it was like a PhD, like a scholarly degree. But I just felt like from the beginning, everything was English, English, English. I felt like a little bit after undergrad, like I wasn't necessarily prepared in like the theory and the criticism aspect. So I was like, I need to kind of catch up and I need to learn these things and actually take the like English courses. But it wasn't just the courses. It was also like the events. The, all the other people I knew were like in English in the first year. Like I was like, okay, whenever I go to events, it's English talks. And then I meet other English people. And I was like, I feel like this is a job in which I am like training to be like an English professor. So I think that really threw me for a loop. And I told my college friends that and they were like, well, yeah, it's a PhD. So it's very narrow and you have to now focus on the thing, which I was like, I guess I should have like thought of that, but it just didn't feel... I didn't realize it was going to feel as kind of professional training as it did. And then, as Laura said earlier, I think the coursework at the beginning, it's not like the fun readings anymore. It's like the hard theory readings now. <laughs> but yeah, from the beginning, it felt a little more like undergrad. But as I had more responsibility with teaching and then with doing independent research, like it started to move away from it and feel quite different. And then now that I like work with undergrads in like teaching and in residential life, I just feel like a more mentoring role. And so I, I don't feel myself as an undergrad, whereas like I did a little bit in the first year, even though I was a bit out of undergrad, but I was just like, I'm just here taking courses. As to preparation, I think I felt a little unprepared compared to some of my friends who came from like Ivy League English departments who like they knew all the names of the people and would like name drop them. And like, they knew all the like theorists. And I was just like, I don't know who any of these people are. Like, I think Laura earlier, you were like, I just didn't really get what the field of history was. Like, I was like, I didn't get what the field of English was either. I was like, I like reading and writing things. So like, I better just go to grad school. Cause like, that's what you do there. So I just didn't have any context for that. And I think the liberal arts school kind of they just didn't emphasize that. And like none of the people at it were like big names or like famous scholars as far as I knew. But I think being at Carleton like really helped me hone a critical thinking skills and like 
become like a good reader and writer because I wrote a lot there, which was really important for me being in grad school. And just like an, an overall interest in like literature and literary studies, which if I hadn't really developed that, like especially near the end of Carleton, because I decided to major in English near the end. <laughs> I think if I like hadn't had that, like, I don't know if I could make it through because like you have to be like so dedicated and like, I, I wouldn't say that I was the most into English, studying English, like throughout all of grad school. Like I wasn't like, I need to work 20 hours a day on English. But at the same time, like, I feel like I had to be committed enough to, like, the discipline to still keep going and, like, do an English project and stuff. I think definitely undergrad prepared me, but, like, grad school is just a very different experience than I had expected. Yeah, so much of what you said, Maddie, sounds so familiar, especially just, like, not knowing any theory (laughs) and going into the classroom and, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, the Marxist you know, modes of production or this, 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 and Gramsci said this. And I'm like, I I guess I should look into, you know, Marxism and really figure that out. It's so interesting that all three of us went to liberal arts colleges for undergrad because I think, you know, it does shape you in such an, a fundamental way that I think a lot of students will experience at different kinds of schools too, but maybe just because liberal arts colleges are so small and, you know, your friends will have all different kinds of majors. There is such a interdisciplinary culture, I think, that maybe, I think actually has probably shaped all of us in our research topics. Because oh, it kind of sounds like all three of us are sort of like on fringes of different fields or like trying to bring different questions what? together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm wondering now if it's because we went to liberal arts colleges and we were so used to like doing so many different kinds of things every semester. I kind of want to do some research now on the types of research that liberal (laughs) arts kids do. The kinds of questions that they're motivated by. That's very cool. I'm sure there's some self-selection happening too. Like some people choose liberal arts colleges for certain things and choose their interests and whatever. And that does kind of keep (laughs) shape what you do. Yeah. And, you know, I think the people who end up at liberal arts colleges when they're 17, 18 are already interested in the interdisciplinary, right? They kind of know like, oh, I'm probably an arts humanities student or I'm a sciences student, but you still want to like keep going like Saranda you took you know so many Shakespeare courses I remember (laughs) shout out for Professor Co yeah so I you know I maybe there is a relationship there but yeah and I mean I I also like I went in thinking I would be a scientist and I did all the science courses for two years and then later I was like oh wait maybe I don't want to do that and then that's how I like came to English so like I did do like a lot like pretty in-depth study in various disciplines that were quite different right yeah and it sounds like I mean you're working on animals you're working on botany gardens I feel like you sort of have to like bring all these things together I think a lot of the questions I'm still trying to answer were formed during undergrad my questioning about sort of national identity and migration really came out of uh, some courses that I took there And I think with grad school, yes, like as Maddie said, it just seemed like a completely different thing. I sort of went in really not knowing anything about how grad school was supposed to go. Also, I think not realizing that it's a professional training program. You sort of think like, oh, well, I have taken classes 
I really liked doing my senior thesis. I've done a tiny bit of archival research. So it's just that for longer, right? Like how different can it be? <laughs> it turns out quite different. And I think, you know, Maddie, you were saying it was just like English courses all the time, talking to like people in the English department all the time. And yes, you know, for me, it was like history people all the time, like history classes all the time. I think I really missed you know, the undergrad schedule where you can kind of mix it up with a CS course or like an astronomy course, you know, to just use your brain in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a lot to get used to. I definitely felt I hadn't done much theory. I think it was also something that wasn't emphasized. We didn't have a historiography class. I don't actually know if non-liberal arts colleges do this for their history undergrads, but I, I know we definitely didn't. And actually, I'd be curious to hear about your experiences with this. I didn't come in with a master's. Yeah, I didn't either. Right. And I think my cohort, probably at least 60%, maybe have a master's. So I think that probably contributed to my feeling of being underread. But then I think you kind of catch up. And yes, uh, I think very similarly to what Maddie said, once you start teaching, I think it changes quite a bit. You don't really feel you're an undergrad anymore because you're actually supposed to impart knowledge <laughs> to undergrad. Yeah. And I think, you know, once you do orals and everything, I think that changes a lot too. But it I think it did take me a while to make that switch. And also just sort of a lot more like self-directed work, you know, I think in undergrad, because each semester was different, like the courses were different. It's sort of like, oh, well, I've written a 20 page paper for this class and I'm done with that now. And I can move on to the next thing. Whereas grad school is like, okay, you need to go back to that paper you wrote four years ago and try to yes. find a way to include it. There's no moving on. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. So true. Different kind of beast, but I think also like what Maddie said, definitely hone some skills and definitely interests in undergrad. And I think a lot of approaches that I have to the field, I learned from my professors and definitely how to teach for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Liberal arts colleges, you know, their teaching methods are amazing. Yeah. So I definitely used my old professor's guidelines and notes for, you know, how to teach them to write and read. Yeah. Switching gears. You both love dance. <gasps> oh, Yay! I didn't realize this. <laughs> I was talking to Maddie about this yesterday and I was like, wait, I really want to bring this up because I know you both do it and you have been doing it for a long time. <laughs> Yay! Maddie, what kind of what kind of dance do you do? So I've done like very many types of dance <laughs> through my childhood. I guess I started when I was three doing ballet and tap, and then I started doing jazz at some point in elementary school. And my studio was really a jazz studio. And then I was like in the performing company, which was a jazz performing company, with that studio when I was in high school. And then I started doing like modern contemporary. In college and here, I've done ballet and modern. And then I also started taking like West African classes in college, which were very fun. And I took one here too. In college, it was um, dances from Guinea and here, here it was dances from Ghana. Oh, and then, oh, I didn't get into the whole social dance. I've done a lot of social dance. Oh, right. I heard yeah. about them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like in the swing. I've been in the swing dance club here for a while and I was a teacher for them. I also, in undergrad, took a bunch of classes for like ballroom and Latin. And then also I did a lot of contra dancing. <laughs> so 
So like that one, you don't have to like, you know, know anything. You just show up and like the caller's like, do si do now. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like it's been like all forms of dance for like my entire life. That's amazing. That's also so many more. <laughs> I was like, what kind of dance do you do? Oh my God. Yeah, I think I also started probably when I was three. Mm-hmm. I mostly did ballet. So I did that until college. And then in college, I joined a modern dance group. But I have to say, I haven't actually really danced like properly since undergrad. And I, ugh. <laughs> this is just my fear of frustration. It kind of goes back to, I think, something that we might have mentioned, or maybe it was just what I was thinking, which is like, after undergrad, it's weird to think about how to live life as an adult. Because you sort of forget that for the first like 22 years of your life, you had a pretty structured uh, you know, schedule with school and then extracurricular activities. And that's kind of similar in college. And so after that, I was like, oh, well, I have my job. And I'll just go to the gym. I didn't even think to join a dance class. And I didn't even think to do that when I got to grad school. Because I was like, oh, I just have to do work all the time, right? Like, that's how this goes. But I have been thinking about doing a class again. I'd probably have to start from the basics. (laughs) Like, from beginner level. You probably remember a lot, yeah. (laughs) Probably not ballet. Ballet might be too intense for me at this point. (laughs) I just, like, I don't think my body can work in that way anymore. Right. But yeah, I'm so happy to hear all of the different dance classes. <laughs> that you yeah, I think that does make sense, though. Like, I feel like once you kind of get into adult life, like the other thing is about dance is it's so expensive. And like, yes. when I was working, so I was working in France before I came to grad school, and I ended up taking out a studio there and I got some sort of pass thing, like where I got a certain amount of classes. It was really good that I had that because I didn't know a lot of people there. And like, otherwise, I exercised by like, doing push-ups on my chair like in my room (laughs) so like it was very good but I mean it was very expensive for like the amount that I was being paid so I mean that's something when I came to Cornell I was like oh it's so nice to be able to be attached to an institution where like I can just access these things and I think I still have to pay a little bit but like much less than if I were taking at like a studio or like taking outside classes so like that's something I've thought a lot a lot about in grad school as I've just like taken a lot of random other classes so that because I'm like hey I like get basically free access to this for like these five years so like I should just take advantage of it um yeah and just doing the clubs and stuff too because clubs are free and like a good way to meet people so yeah I think it's been really helpful for me to still do dance I mean I think Speranda's heard a lot of my frustrations (laughs) with like different dance classes I've had or like rather different dance teachers Sometimes you just have to like step away from those (laughs) or in the clubs. If there's like drama, drama, you're like, okay, I just have to step away. But I think it's been nice. Like I've been taking a class during pandemic or I took two modern classes in the spring and then now. And like, it's been nice to just have that as like a time to like do exercise and like not be doing my normal work and kind of have another community, even though it has to be on Zoom now, but like... So I think it's still good to like have it in my life. Yeah, no, dance, there are so many skills that you learn, not just physical skills that I think are just so helpful for yeah. like navigating life. And one thing I thought about was you actually have to learn how to take criticism from yes, pretty early yes. on. You know, your teachers will come up and correct you in front of 
other people and that's okay. <laughs> you know, I think you have to learn like it is okay, so okay to make mistakes and you just learn from it and keep going. I think teamwork is a pretty big aspect too. I feel like I'm starting to sound like a PSA or something. Right <laughs> like dance. Yeah, join a dance club. But I definitely remember my friends from ballet, like I'd known some of them since I was like four or five and they were, you know, a completely separate group from my school friends, but it was still nice to have that. And, you know, you just obviously form kind of like special bonds during performances and everything. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like I was just going to also say off the point about like taking criticism. Like, I think that's really true as a, as a child who I feel like I was not very good at taking criticism or just like, if somebody was like, you did a bad job, I'd like go in a ball and be like, Oh, <laughs> I think like, it is really important. And also I was, I was taking class with my friend who had never taken dance class before last semester. And so he got corrected in class. And afterward, I was like, oh, it's great to like get corrected. Because like my teachers, when I was in like elementary school or whatever, would be like, if your teacher corrects, you should thank them and be like, happy that they like want to help you get better. So I was kind of telling him that. I mean, it also plays into this toxic dance world thing of being like, you got noticed and like a correction means the teacher looked at you and like wants to like help you or whatever. But it's still like also I think can be seen in a good light of like you want to take charge of your learning and like you want to like get better and like you're not concerned about like what it looks like in front of other people or like you making a mistake like you're actually learning. So I was kind of telling him that I was like oh like the teacher wants to help you learn and stuff so because I think he was like a little bit like oh my god like so many people are looking at me like yeah <laughs> I and I think that's such an important point like learning how to do this in front of other people obviously it's a performance based thing so right every year you're doing at least one performance probably you have to deal with stage fright you have to deal with like oh I like fell on the stage yeah <laughs> And just, like, how to move past that, right? Yeah, or, like, looking looking silly in front of other people. I think yes. it really helped me to, like, get beyond that. Because I was, like, a pretty self-conscious child. But, like, also being, like, the whole point of this is for people to look at you. And, like, you're learning to, like, make it cool. <laughs> no, there's so many things that I think I wouldn't have realized they probably came from ballet as opposed to, you know, anything else. Just, like, reading books again. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Looking back at your memories. Well, this is a perfect place to stop, Laura and Maddie. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting us. This was such a lovely conversation. And Maddie, I'm so glad we got to meet. I know, Laura. I've heard so much about you. And I'm so glad that like finally happened <laughs> on this podcast. And it was great to like, yeah, I think it was great to share a lot of, you know, how our writing is going and just general experiences from grad school across fields and like we are not alone in this. yeah no exactly <laughs> it's like very good to hear from people in like different fields but like still humanities fields like in different schools and like oh yeah all the like struggles are like kind of the same <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for tuning in to this new episode i hope you liked learning more about what a phd in history and one in english can be like 
I often find myself having preconceived notions of what certain words might mean. So one of my favorite bits about these chats is learning more about a field from someone who is passionate enough about it to enter a PhD program in it, dedicate years of their life to answering some questions. History, for Laura, is about challenging our assumptions about why we live the way we do. And English, for Maddie, helps us see how a text is constructed, what the people who created a text are trying to get us to do, but then also help us think critically and make our own interpretations, which I find so empowering. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgar Telly. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.